Greetings and welcome to Best Cultural Destinations podcast, People Are Culture. I'm Meg Pierre, host of this interview series, which presents stories of how culture is created, preserved, and shared one person at a time. People Are Culture podcast celebrates our unique differences and shared human condition and reveals that while the phenomenon of culture is universal, its meaning is personal. Deborah Carr has served since 2014 as Executive Director of Intuit, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art, which is located in Chicago. Founded in 1991, Intuit celebrates the power of outsider art, a mission grounded in the ethos that the instinct to create is universal. The arts must embrace and be accessible to all, regardless of education level or socioeconomic status. Intuit is one of the world's premier museums of outsider art, the work of artists with little influence from the mainstream art world. Deb's passion is for the role museums can play in social good and increasing museum relevance through programming focused on bringing the marginalized into community. She is excited by opportunities to introduce audiences to unexpected engagement with art and opening each person up to their own untapped creativity. It's a pleasure to welcome Deb to the People Our Culture podcast. Deb, thank you so much for making the time to join me and to share with listeners of the Best Cultural Destinations People Our Culture podcast um, something about outsider art and about the Intuit Museum, um, which I've heard a lot about and I'm excited to get to know better through this conversation. Um, I'm going to ask you as a starting point, a question that I ask each guest um, just to kind of lay the foundation. And that is, um, what is culture? How do you define culture? Well, Meg, I'm really happy to be here. And thanks for starting with such an easy question. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But I will say that um, when I think about culture, and this is not a textbook definition, of course, but my own definition, I think it's the creative output of uh, humans. It's maybe that can also be divided up into the creative output of specific communities. But um, creativity, I think, is one of the um, underlying principles for me. Okay, that's great. I would agree. Um, it's, It's fascinating as I talk to different people and ask this question because it is a phenomenon that is universal and personal and people have many different ideas um, and they're all spot on. So um, my next question is, why does culture matter? I think in some ways culture matters. I mean, it has always mattered, but I think it might matter today more than ever. I think that um, people are feeling disconnected from situations from each other, from communities possibly, and um, being able to tap into either their own cultural background, the cultural background of their communities, or being able to um, come up with um, ways to cope with the challenges of today's society. I think that uh, experiencing culture, experiencing um, Creativity is is a way for us to um, relieve stress, to become more empathetic, to understand each other better in in times when often we are speaking at each other and not um, 
with each other. Very well said. Well, I, I agree. I mean, I think I one of the ways I define culture is as a form of communication and expression. Um, and certainly the world is getting more complicated and um, it's all the more urgent that, that we can understand each other. Um, to now, you know, focus specifically on Intuit, um, the Center for Intuitive and Outsider Art was founded in 1991. And as a starting point, can you give us the kind of 10,000 foot view and define intuitive and outsider art and explain if the two are different and if so, how? So Intuit was founded by a group of Chicagoans who had gotten really interested in art made by people who are self-taught with little influence from the mainstream art world. And that's sort of the definition that we use. And one of the reasons it was founded in Chicago is because Chicago is one of the first places in the United States that really became interested and embraced this art. At the time, um, maybe mid-century, last, uh, last century, when the French artist Jean Dubuffet came to the United States, he was very interested and had been looking at what he called art brut, which is um, raw art, but art made by people who were um, had, had some sort of mental illness, and he thought that was the only pure form of art. When he came to the United States in the 50s and started talking about this, he didn't get any traction in New York. New York, I think at that point, was still looking towards Europe and the European academic mainstream, but he got a lot of receptivity in Chicago when he spoke to the Arts Club of Chicago in 1951. And I think that kind of goes to the Chicago vibe where people here were not looking to compete with um, Europe. They, they weren't, we weren't on the, one of the big coasts and people here were interested in things that were raw and edgy and quirky. And um, I've so many times been asked why have so many outsider artists come out of Chicago. And I think the answer is that there aren't more outsider artists in Chicago. It's just that there are more um, people looking for those artists and saving the art and collecting the art and promoting the genre. So Intuit was founded here in Chicago because there was so much interest in this genre. Um, today, in 2019, there's a lot of acceptance around the world in New York and the South. Um, in this genre, but it's an interesting time because there's a lot of um, disagreement about how we define the genre. So there are lots of terms being kicked around right now, um, intuitive, visionary, um, non-traditional folk art, vernacular, um, still art brood is being used, outsider. Um, there's, a, there's a new exhibit um, that was at the National Gallery. It's at the LA County Museum of Art right now, using the term outliers. I've heard non-mainstream. So there's no good agreement among the scholars or the collectors or the um, community about what we call this art. But for now, Intuit is still uh, intuitive and outsider art. Uh, that, the, that sort of umbrella of terms is, we go back to self-taught art with little influence from the academic mm -hmm, mainstream. Mm -hmm. And as an aside, um, do you think part of the growing appeal of the art form is a resistance to, you know, embedded institutions and, you know, a certain level of academic training being necessary? I mean, do you think there's more of a uh, an appreciation for um, 
you know, the raw talent of someone um, in this day and age. This could probably be the subject of someone's thesis, Meg, but I think that uh, I think that it could be <laughs> partly that rebellion against uh, institutions. I think that it could be partly that um, it's it's less and less easy to be completely in isolation. And so um, I think that we are, you know, populations have grown, cities have grown, and it's and it's harder for people to be working without other people knowing what they're doing or for people to be working and not realizing that what they were, are doing could be considered um, an artistic practice. And I think that it'll be interesting to see mm. how the genre evolves going forward as we are in a time today where it's more and more difficult to be isolated from, from others, from influences, from... Um, technology. And of course, all artists have influences. It doesn't matter who they are, outsider artists or academically trained artists. But I think that, um, you know, there are some of the, outs the sort of the outsider artists that we consider part of, of the canon, to use an academic term, who didn't even consider what they were doing to be art. They were just making because they had, they were compelled to create others who did consider what they were doing to be art and were trying to market or promote the work that they were doing. It really runs the gamut, but I think it's going to be more and more difficult in a, in this technically technologically advanced society for us to say, here's someone who's completely isolated. Right, right. Well, that's a very interesting point because I think I am a, a fan of outsider art, um, you know, by any name. And um, I've had an interest in it for a while. And one of the things that has always struck me about it is just the the just incredible imagination, um, you know, that just seems to exude from what from the art that I've seen. Um, and um, so, you know, I do agree that in a world that's getting increasingly homogenized because of technology, um, you know, to have that really unique, fresh, just incredibly uh, creative worldview um, has to be kind of hard to maintain. And I guess I, I had never really quite thought of it that way. Um, but that's a good springboard for my next question, which is, Intuit celebrates the power of outsider art, and its mission is grounded in the ethos that the instinct to create is universal. Can you expand on this universal instinct in the in the context of outsider art? I think this question has a couple of different layers. Let me try to tackle those. One is that this art is made by people who are so compelled to create that they must create, and oftentimes they don't have any access to what we would consider to be art materials. And so they make with whatever is to hand, whether that's sculpture with found objects or uh, drawings and paintings made with found paper, um, using non-traditional paint materials like blood or mud or spit. Um, it's To me, I think that's a really compelling aspect of some of the work that the, that the, the compulsion to create is so overwhelming that even without materials, there's there's a way to make art. There's a way to be creative. I think that we also believe that um, we can't just 
say that academically trained people are the only ones that create legitimate, worthwhile, powerful art, that, that these artists are just as capable of creating powerful, transformational artworks as, as some of the academically trained artists. And then I think there's an, a completely other layer. I think that, as I said earlier, I think we, we live in a time and live in a society where we're all stressed, we're moving at tremendous speed, and taking the time to slow down and appreciate art and the, have, the, have that de-stress that comes from viewing art. But I think that we also try to promote people making art and whether they come to be part of a workshop and make art or they see something and they think, I, I want to go home and get creative. Um, there's a lot of studies out now, some terrific research that being creative, making art, um, however you define that, writing or poetry or music, making visual art reduces stress. It actually increases empathy, which we could all use a little more empathy in our world right now. Mm. It um, reduces people's reliance on prescription drugs. There's all this incredibly great uh, physiological benefit from making art. We have a summer teen mentorship program, and our teens, um, they create, uh, they put together art-making workshops that they, that a teen facilitates in front of other teens, but part of their daily routine as they're planning their workshops is to just sit down and be creative as part of their day. And when we ask them at the end of the day, what's your favorite thing about the day? It's always the time that they spend being creative. And um, anyone who's been creative knows that that can be frustrating sometimes. I don't like what I did or this didn't come out the way I imagined. But that um, sort of intensity that comes with focusing, focusing singularly on your on making something can be incredibly helpful for us uh, in terms of psychological and physical uh, manifestation. Mm. And so to kind of take that idea and apply it to the, the world at large, you know, the, the people commuting and the people in the grocery stores and the CEOs of companies, what can, can those people who are maybe not considered outsiders <coughs> learn about creativity from you know, the type of artists that are exhibited at Intuit? Well, I think that we can learn, all of us, that we don't have to have a studio. We don't have to have art supplies. Uh, take, a, take a moment and sit down and, and be creative. I think that there's also some research out there that if you're someone who doodles, that that helps your concentration. I, I think uh, famously Tony Blair, the British prime minister, was a doodler because it would help him concentrate on what he was what he was listening to or thinking about. Um, so I think that we all should find uh, moments in the spaces and in the interstitials of our life where we could just take a moment and be creative and find that stress release that comes from, from doing that. And so we don't have to have fancy art supplies. We don't have to have a studio. We don't have to take a two-hour chunk of time. Just Just find a moment in figure out a way to, to be creative and, and step away from the intensity of our lives. Mm. Um, now, it also occurs to me, um, you know, thinking about the average, you know, quote unquote, mainstream person and, and what they perhaps could take away from outsider artists, um, you know, this compulsion to create um, is not dependent on any kind of outcome. 
And, you know, so much of what you see going on in the world today, you know, like people literally, you know, dying, trying to take Instagram pictures of themselves and um, this incredible focus on gratification through a response from other people. Um, and yet these outsider artists are, you know, they don't seem concerned about that. I mean, is that another takeaway that, that we can learn? I think that's a great idea, Meg. I'm not sure that I had thought of it in those terms before. I love that. They are making art primarily for themselves. And um, for instance, Henry Darger, who is probably the quintessential outsider artist, one of the most renowned outsider artists in the world, did not become famous, wasn't discovered until his death. And he literally told his landlords, throw everything away. But he created for himself. He did not expect any, he had no expectations that any audience other than himself would see this work. And yet he spent years and years making art. He took piece, portions of his very meager janitor's salary and used it to make photographic enlargements and reductions of images that he found that he might want to trace. And it was just about the you know, doing this for himself, his own creative process. It, or, or we think, you know, that maybe he was doing this to resolve his own concerns and issues about what was happening around him in the world. He saw himself as a protector of children, and so he drew pictures of children, and he drew um, pictures of bad guys, and he drew pictures of children rescuing other children. It's pretty interesting stuff. Yes, well, he's someone I, I'd love to spend some time talking about because I haven't seen the exhibit, but I've I've seen um, it depicted online, and I, I need to have not just a virtual experience, but a, a a real experience of the exhibit. But can, for listeners, can you describe? Um, I mean, I think his story is just fascinating, and I'm wondering if you can share um, an overview of his life and his work and the exhibit, um, which I I know is a part of the permanent collection there. Can you talk a little bit about Henry Darger? Sure. So uh, Henry Darger was born in Chicago in the late 1800s, and he was orphaned as a young child and through a series of you know illnesses and his mother's death and then his father's illness and death, he ended up at a place that was literally called the Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children in downstate Lincoln, Illinois. Obviously, that's not terminology we would ever use with, with today's uh, mindset, but he was um, in this asylum for a number of years, and on his third attempt, he successfully escaped at either 16 or 17, made his way back to Chicago, and there turned to the Catholic Church. He had been raised a Catholic, and nuns found him a job as a dishwasher and a janitor in a Catholic hospital. He um, at one point was in the army during World War I for just a year and he was um, dismissed from the, discharged from the army. He never served overseas. He probably wasn't very suitable for the military service. And he came back to Chicago. And at some point he began writing, typing a single-spaced typewritten novel that eventually ran to 15,145 pages, a Tolkien-esque good versus evil story of, of another planet, another land 
where the evil Glendalinians were holding children as slaves and torturing them. And seven Christian princesses, the Vivian girls, their sisters, who, like Joan of Arc, mount armies to go and rescue the child slaves from the evil Glendalinians. They're aided by magical creatures, the Blingaglaminians, uh, Blingans for short, that come in uh, various species, either animal-headed Blingans or human-headed Blingans, and they have horns. Sometimes they have giant butterfly wings. They have dragon tails, and they're they can fly, and they um, come in from time to time to assist the Vivian girls. They love the child slaves, and they hate the evil Glendalinians. Um, and all of this became accompanied over the years by magnificent illustrations um, that were a combination of tracings, collage, freehand drawings, um, just magnificent paintings, some of them very horrific because they're depicting a terrible moment in the story where, where the Glendalinians are doing their evil, others beautiful, floral, um, light-hearted, lovely paintings of, of children and flowers. Um, others are paintings of the flags that he created for each of the armies or the uniforms he created for each of the armies. And um, so here he is, this, he's doing this in secret. In his, the last 40 years of his life, he lived in a one-room apartment in um, an apartment building in Lincoln Park, which is now a very nice affluent neighborhood, but a little bit less so back then. And um, at, and he was actually inherited with the building when um, his landlord, Nathan Lerner, bought the building that he lived in. And um, Nathan was um, part of the Institute of Design here. He was a student of, of Maholi Naj. He came out of that um, sort of mid-century, early 40s and 50s uh, creative world that was happening here in Chicago. And because he was a, a professional product designer and an artist himself, a photographer, uh, when Henry died, uh, Nathan discovered all of this stuff and saw that it was a value. And 99 other yeah. scenarios, it could wow. have just been thrown out as trash. And Henry, Henry said to Nathan and his uh, wife, Kyoko Lerner, who was a classical pianist, just, you know, just throw everything away. And they didn't. Um, and now those artworks are found in museums around the world and lots of private collections. And uh, we were lucky enough here at Intuit to be able to take on all of the artifacts and ephemera. So his many, many, many notebooks of materials that he cut out of newspapers and magazines that he thought he might want to trace. He would tape those in like scrapbooks of things he might want to trace. He, we have some incredible coloring book pages of images that are repeated over and over again in the artworks. It's really interesting to see how those, the, some of those images appear in artwork after artwork. Um, and we have his paint pots that he created, he he took tempera paints and mixed it himself and put them into a bottle cap, um, like uh, not not uh, 
soda pop bottle caps, but like, you know, vinegar bottle caps or other kinds of bottles um, and let that dry. And he could use those little paint pots just like you could with a watercolor if you moistened it. But you would get a much more vivid color using tempera than you would with watercolor. And he mixed the, up his colors himself. And so the, the paints have these incredible labels on them that he made, oh. like storm cloud purple or... Uh, Army shirt green, um, those kinds of those kinds of names that he would give them. We have he was a he was a hoarder. We have lots of magazines. We have balls of twine in an old-fashioned laundry hamper. We have um, cigar boxes full of pencils and paintbrushes. We have boxes. Uh, there's a cigar box with large rubber bands. There's a couple other boxes that he put a label on it that says small rubber bands. And if the rubber bands broke, he would tape or tie them back together. <laughs> um, so lots of rubber bands um, and um, things that he would cut out of newspapers or magazines that were taped to the wall and lots and lots of religious iconography, uh, crosses and rosaries. We have his chandelier, we have his fireplace, we have his Victrola, we have uh, furnishings and trunks and his typewriter. Um, so we have a lot of people who are fans of Henry Darger that come from all over the world to come and see the Darger room and sort of suck up the ambience. It's, it's a great mystery. Why did Henry do this? What was the meaning of all of this? And I think it's one of the most fascinating stories ever in the world of art. And there are a lot of people who are really intrigued by this. There's a, if you go on YouTube, there's a great documentary done by a documentarian, Jessica Yu, called In the Realms of the Unreal, which is also the title of the novel uh, about the Vivian girls. And uh, it's, it's a great uh, documentary for folks to watch if they haven't um, heard of Henry before. But I promise you now that it's in your, um, now that's in, it, that you've heard of it and it's in your psyche, you will start to hear more and more of Henry. He tends to to trickle into popular culture in some interesting ways. Mm. Well, I mean, I have several responses um, that come up for me in, in hearing you tell his story. And I guess, you know, one of them is the idea of um, the healing power of art. Um, you know, whatever, you know, might have been the motivation for his narrative, um, you know, it's possible that, you know, there was some healing power to believing that he could, you know, uh, be a force behind, you know, a, a world where, you know, they're good. Is absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. And also, and I, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we will never know. And to me, um, that is, what is so cool about art is that it's so open to interpretation and it's so open to whatever it brings up for us. And um, mm -hmm. it's a mystery. Um, so, so we can try to imagine, you know, what might've occurred in his life to kind of inspire this type of narrative. But I'm also thinking that, you know, um, so much of what goes on in the world today is people documenting their reality. Um, you know, when I'm thinking through all the social media channels, you know, it's people chronicling their day-to-day -day existence, um, you know, sometimes to kind of a crazy degree. And 
you know, what do you think Henry says about, um, you know, the, uh, the power to just unleash your imagination and fantasize and, and not have to be <laughs> so based in reality all the time? I mean, obviously, I'm not, I'm not endorsing the idea of checking out from reality permanently, but do you think there's, there's, I mean, the draw that he has for people because he was so engaged in his fantasy life? Well, I think that I think that one of the things that appeals to people, in addition to the things that you've touched on, Meg, is that he used his art as a way of finding his way through his own personal tragedy, his own personal um, upheaval. I think that art has a tremendous power, and and I think this is one of the reasons why outsider artists make art it's a tremendous power to provide self-engagement and self-fulfillment um, it's it's a reason why art therapy is used for people suffering from PTSD it's it's art and art making can be incredibly healing and it can give us an outlet so you know, people have often asked me, do you think Henry might have turned to a different direction if he hadn't had art? Well, Henry did turn to art and whatever experiences, and we can't really know what those were. Um, he told a story, he also wrote an autobiography. He told a story that um, on one of his attempts to escape from the asylum, he was working one day at the farm. There was a farm that, that they that was associated with the asylum and he tried to escape from the farm and he was chased down by a man on horseback and lassoed and made to run behind the horse back to the asylum. Now we don't know if that actually happened. Henry was a storyteller, but that's an, that's an, um, a depiction that has shown up in his artwork where an evil Glendalinian is, on horseback with a cowboy hat, lassos a child and is pulling that lasso tight, um, in effect, torturing that child. And um, so here he is. He's either imagined this horrific experience for himself or he had this horrific experience and he's dealing with that through um, working through it in his art. And I think that, right. I think whatever happened to Henry, um, whatever his experiences were, he has found an incredible outlet, and it's one that we can look at and appreciate. I, I often tell people there are really horrific scenes in in Henry Darger's artwork, and don't take that as some sort of interpretation of who Henry is. Take that as an interpretation of how he is dealing with good and evil in the world. Right. Well, I mean, I think one of the biggest takeaways for me from what I know of his art and his story is that he clearly had a belief that there was a force for good. And, you know, I think there are people out there today who have almost kind of given up on that. Um, but um, now to take a look at another artist, um, and this is someone who to me is kind of um, almost the antithesis of... Um, of Henry, um, and forgive me if I mispronounce this artist's name, but in the collection, there's a drawing by Eugene Andalesque, 
um, of a geometric design that is so precise and orderly. And um, it was it's fascinating to me because, you know, most of the outsider art that I'm familiar with is is so explosively, you know, um, uh, without precision. And, um, you know, it may just be that I don't know enough, um, but does Eugene's work say something different as far as you're concerned? Or is there a whole genre of outsider art where there is this very precise attention to minute detail? Yes, there is a whole, you know, subset of this art that with this precise attention to detail. But I think that the the thread that ties all of these artists together is compulsion, that they are compelled to make this. So whether they're just drawing and filling every, you know, square centimeter of a large um, piece of, of paper or canvas, or if they're... Um, making a sculpture and they just keep adding and adding and adding to it, I think there is a compulsion factor. And there are a number of artists that have made very detailed drawings, sort of blowing their audiences away. There's a, a wonderful artist practicing in Japan right now, Hiroyuki Doi, and his work is all these tiny circles. And he has a, you know, like certain pens he likes to use. And they look sort of like they sort of almost look like if you'd thrown raindrops up into the, like in Chicago and it was during the polar vortex and people could take boiling water and throw it up in the air and it would just turn into mist. Some of his, Ooh. some of his work just looks like mist, but when you get up close to it, you can see every little bit of that mist is a circle that he's drawn. So uh -huh. uh, very incredibly detailed art. Um, not quite as detailed, but one of my favorite outsider artists uh, is Martin Ramirez, um, someone who also was considered to be, um, you know, possibly mentally ill. We don't really know what, um, you know, what his what his real diagnosis would be in today's world. But he was he was um, in a hospital and in a facility where he wasn't allowed to. Um, go back to his home in Mexico. And he spent most of his life drawing with paper that was, that he either scrounged or was eventually provided to him. And the perspective in his paintings is lots and lots of lines. And sometimes there's a caballero, kind of a, you know, cowboy figure, or a sheriff figure in his paintings, trains with train tracks. And the perspective is so remarkable in his drawings of this artist in a hospital with no training, little exposure, if any, to other artists. And he's often held up as ex example in art school of what perspective should be, because he does such an amazing job at perspective. Wow. Wow. That's cool. Um, and um, uh, I want to talk now about um, an exhibit that um, I believe just opened at Intuit um, with with more than 60 drawings of the New Zealand artist, and forgive me again if I mispronounce her name, Susan it's T. Susan Kaurangi? T. King? Kaurangi King. And yes, we just opened this exhibit. We're very excited to have it. She's a living artist from New Zealand. Um, she has had a couple of small exhibits, um, I think, 
uh, down under and in the United States. And we're really thrilled to have this exhibit. It's the first time we've exhibited um, a number of her works at Intuit, but it's also the first time it's been accompanied by what we are, what is known as the Petita Cole collection. Her sister, Petita Cole, has um, amassed some artifacts, much like some of the artifacts you would see in the Henry Darger room, to help us, um, to guide us through some of the influences on uh, Susan King's work. And the, the very special thing about Susan, in addition to how fabulous her artwork is, um, is that she doesn't speak. Um, she was ultimately diagnosed with autism, and she um, she makes art, and she makes incredibly beautiful, detailed uh, illustrations, um, drawings, and she began drawing when she was quite young, when she uh, was still speaking, but by, I think, the age of eight, she stopped speaking, but she has, for most of her life, um, in some ways communicated through her drawings. And I think that it's an incredibly beautiful story that she wasn't, that wasn't dismissed by her family. Her family saved her drawings. Uh, first, her grandmother kept a diary of the kinds of things that Susan was experiencing and drawing, kind of giving us um, a history of Susan uh, that can, that parallels the drawings and what Susan was drawing at different phases of her life. So we have drawings of hers from the age of eight all the way up to uh, recent drawings. She did a she actually did an, uh, a residency uh, in the Hamptons in um, I think about a year ago, and we have those drawings as well. And um, after her grandmother passed away, her sister began sort of took up that mantle of um, documenting Susan's work, and she has. Uh, brought together a, a lovely collection of things like the beautiful children's linoleum that was on the floor of Susan's bedroom when she was a, a child, um, some of the toys and things that were around the house, a whole assortment of um, everyday objects that Petita has found appear in Susan's work. And it's, and it's one way to approach the artwork because Susan can't tell us about it. Right. And how old is Susan now? Let's see. She was born in 51. Ah, okay. So she's probably then close to she's, 70? She's, 60, she's 67. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I guess the other question I would ask, uh, which is kind of the antithesis of, of something I put out there earlier in our conversation, but how was she, you know, quote unquote, discovered? You know, um, how was her work brought to the attention of whomever, you know, what led to her residency in the, in the Hamptons and to her exhibit at Intuit? Well, uh, the family was very um, fortunate to be connected with uh, a gallerist and art enthusiast, Chris Byrne, who is currently based in Dallas. And, uh, and he's originally from Philadelphia, I believe. And Chris has, has helped facilitate making sure that, that Susan Susan's work gets some nice exposure in the United States. Mm -hmm. Okay. And and how would you, you know, so her, her work, is it mostly shapes or is there a narrative to it at all? It's, there, there, you know, it's, it's difficult to just pigeonhole it because uh, the works have changed over time. 
some of the very earliest works, you know, normally a, a child would make a drawing and um, clearly Donald Duck is one of her favorite characters or, you know, an image that she comes back to. And most children would just put a Donald Duck in the center of a page. What she's done is deconstruct elements of Donald's jacket and hat and his beak and his legs. And those um, appear almost, they, they extend out past the edges of the drawing. So she creates this really incredible negative space. So the it's as if you took the elements of Donald's character and made puzzle pieces and some of them landed on the page and some of them didn't. And um, so they're really, the, the negative space is really dramatic. And some of her drawings are uh, human, human figures, drawings of uh, naked girls over and over and over again in one drawing, but also somewhat, there's one that's on the, looks like it's on the back of a, of a box and uh, that's been folded flat and below the fold there's just feet and uh, between the folds it's a it's a part of the body and above the fold it's other parts of, of bodies and they're just repeated over and over again but in a pattern that is really um, appealing really beautiful um, uh, some of them are just in black and white some of them are uh, elements are in black and white and elements are in color some of them are just um, forms of repeating similar sort of almost square rectangular shapes in different colors. Um, they're, they're, they're so varied. They're just incredible, the variation. Mm. But it's interesting, you know, you describing her work as involving patterns. And that is something that I do tend to, I mean, I, I realize you can't make generalizations and yet I'm going to, I mean, a lot of the outsider art that I'm familiar with, um, one of the reoccurring themes are patterns. And is, is that just me seeing things through my own filter or is that a phenomenon in the genre? Well, I, I don't, you know, I'm I'm sitting here right now, and I'm I'm in my office. I'm looking at at two pieces of art, and one is kind of a portrait with um, bright colors in sort of almost a frame shape around it that doesn't really have much of a pattern. And another one is a portrait, and the background looks like a patterned wallpaper. But I think that that the patterns are also something that we see in a lot of trained artists work so I think I think I can't um mm -hmm. you know I don't I don't you know I don't think I can um I don't think I can say Meg I think it I think it's a I think that's a tough one right uh-huh okay um fair enough um now looking at another exhibit um that's currently um featured into it. Um, it's the, the exhibit of two Chicago-based artists, uh, Robert Johnson and E. Nix. And I'm wondering if you can describe the exhibit and their work. And um, I believe there's a, an underlying theme to both of their work of addiction. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about that. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So when we, when we took down uh, the big exhibit that we had up last year, we ended up, we were, we knew we were going to end up with, we're a, we're a small museum and we have two main gallery spaces and we knew we were going to end up with a period of time where things were empty. 
and we and I said, what can we do? And uh, there's a wonderful artist and curator here in Chicago, Fahim Majid, who's done some really in, incredible uh, sculpture sculpture work and other interesting things in the city. He's a real um, uh, force. And Fahim had approached me in November and he said, I know these two guys, I'd love to curate something. And so I said, rather than let's have the whole space closed down while we're turning things over and getting ready for Susan Te Kaharangi King, why don't we take our um, theater space and do something in there? And Fahim was really interested in that. And I think that has translated into something pretty interesting because that space is not a traditional um, gallery space. It's, it's, uh, it's the floor is a little rougher. The, the space is used for theatrical presentations and other kind of um, events. It's, it's a little bit cozier space. It's a little bit more casual space. And I think that works really well with these two artists work to be in, in a less pristine environment than a white box and put them in a little edgier space. Um, uh, both of these artists uh, are still living, um, and that's really exciting for us. We're doing a lot of living artists this year, and um, they both have struggled with addiction. Um, Enix is still uh, struggling with having a stable home, um, but these these guys have their, their work, of course, really reflects their personal experiences. So. Robert Johnson was addicted to heroin when he was a young man. He was making art at the same time. He didn't have access to art supplies. His money was going into um, his addiction. He would uh, troll the city looking for construction sites and ask for windows. And he, we have two pieces downstairs that are really amazing that he did back during that time. And they are uh, square window frames with uh, a wooden support down the middle. And on either side are the, the glass sections. And would you, um, it's, it's, I, if you've ever seen anything with um, anything painted on glass, you, they, the painter paints it backwards, right? Because you paint behind the glass. And so whatever's on top goes down first and the background goes down last. And he's got these two panels. Um, one of them is um, buildings, look like housing projects. And then in each panel, there are guys with guns pointing their guns at each other. And there's a, a figure at the bottom left that he says is sort of the, his yellow brick road to nowhere. And then right down the middle are crosses and dollar signs and the crosses represent people who were dying in the situation and of course the dollar signs is the money being made by the people who were selling the drugs and um, he decided he had to get out of that life and his extreme form of uh, rehabilitation was to enlist in the army and that was how he um, moved out of his addiction it worked wow. for him yeah he enlisted in the army and that was his rehab. Mm. Um, so he was in the army, he served. And when he came out of the army, he had PTSD from his service and he went to the veterans administration and they wanted to put him on um, medication. And he said, no, I, I can't, I can't go back. 
Um, and he had not been painting. He had so closely associated his art making practice with his drug addiction that he had not gone back to art. And the VA said, well, if you're not going to, if you're not going to go on medication, let's try art therapy. And I love the story he tells where he went into uh, an art making class and the instructor said, well, you know, are you familiar with art making? Have you painted before? And Rob said, not really. And then of course, very quickly, his art teacher realized that yes, he had. And his current work is uh, painting on canvas and he can't, he says he can't really afford to go to uh, an art supply store and buy canvas. So he goes to stores where he can buy really cheap paintings and frames that, you know, uh, kind of like what, what we might see in hotels. I don't know if I'm going to run down hotels or, yeah, yeah. Uh, like tack, like more tacky kind of mass produced paintings in cam uh, on canvas in frames. And he buys those and he paints over them, which mm. I think is, is terrific. Mm -hmm. um, and he still uses some, he has some themes that recur in his artworks, in his, um, in his paintings of, there's buildings, there's oftentimes a road or uh, cars or other kinds of transportation a home, which I think is really beautiful, that there's a that there's a home there. There are figures. Um, there's one that we have up right now that's sort of a, a crazy looking dog. And somebody, we did a, a, a panel discussion with with them, and one of the audience members says, "You know, what inspired you to do this dog?" And he said, "Well, there was a dog on the painting when I started, but I painted all over it, and now there's another dog on top." <laughs> now I want to ask you, Deb, um, is it? common that outsider artists um, do work that is kind of a social commentary or, um, you know, Rob's work, um, you know, with the, with the crosses and the dollar signs, you know, is, is he's clearly making a statement. And um, can you talk a little bit? But, I, but he's also, he's also overcoming his own experience. He's also dealing with that traumatic experience he, he had. Right. Yes, definitely. But, but yeah. so, so then would you say that that was really his motivation as opposed to making any kind of uh, political statement? Just really. We, we, we'd have, we'd have to ask him. I mean, maybe it's both. I mean, Henry, Henry Darger was very influenced by a little girl that went missing in Chicago when he was a young man. And he was obsessed by that. And he, you know, he clearly, was creating art that was about the children needing rescue and mm. protection. So I think that, you know, I think that we, we can see that these artists are influenced by their events and maybe some of those events are current events or political situations. Right. And now um, can you share more about Enix? So um, Enix had as um, a young man, um, apprenticed in a in a uh, with a blacksmith who made furniture and so he has blacksmithing skills so his current practice is that he also trolls the city for things that he might want to use and goes through trash looking for um, objects that he might use in his sculptures there's a sculpture um, in that space right now that it was inspired by his childhood love of the movie Pinocchio and he said his mom used to call him Pinocchio when he was a kid. Um, and he said that, that, that 
movie spoke to him because he always wanted to be a real boy. And so there's a a sculpture downstairs that's got um, metal legs, um, uh, metal, it looks like metal, looks like metal male genitalia, a plastic head. Um, There's part of the torso is inside the torso are what looks to me like uh, paint bottles. So um, here's this this um, what appears to me is is some version of of a self-portrait or a self-inspired portrait of this incredible uh, sculpture. Um, There's another sculpture, another metal sculpture that's more abstract, really beautiful in dark tones and reds. And then there's some paintings that he's done, and he's done these paintings on Tyvek. Tyvek's really durable. So, you know, you can find Tyvek at lots of construction sites because it's used in, in building construction. And he said, you know, he can get this Tyvek and this, you know, waste Tyvek and paint on it. And it's incredibly durable. And it's also has this incredible texture where it's hanging on the wall. And it just almost feels like you could wrap yourself in it because it's so flexible. Mm. So, um, so different than, than a, a stiff uh, drawing or painting on uh, canvas. Mm. Sounds like a great exhibit. Yeah, and and uh, Enix also brought when we had the panel discussion. He brought his son with him, and he said he had told me personally. He said my son is my best friend, and he has this uh, uh, young son who is with him, and it was uh, really touching to to see him there. And they were both a little bit, you know, they're not used to talking about their art, and they were both, I think, a little nervous. But the their storytelling was so marvelous. You can tell how inspired I was by them. And, um, and I loved that he had his son with him and that um, Rob had his mom with him. And, and it was just lovely to see this outpouring of support from their community and from some of our regular audiences. So it was really exciting. We had standing room only the day that these two guys were talking about their art. Um, and um, they're going to be doing art after work this coming week with um, our, our third Thursday uh, regular crowd. And... They're going to sit alongside the folks that come by for art making and and beverages and snacks and uh, encourage uh, some of the some of the folks who are not artists to sit down and make art with our artists. Looking forward to that. Mm, that's awesome, um, and that that really um, is a great segue into my next question, which is. Um, you know, you have a passion for the role that museums can play in um, social good and increasing museum relevance through programming that's focused on bringing um, the marginalized into the community. And I'm wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about your motivation, um, you know, why you have an affinity for those who are marginalized and whether there was any personal pivotal experience that compelled you to, you know, um, to engage in work that is um, centered on people who are quote unquote on the outside? Well, there's, there's a couple of things in my background. One is that I've been in the museum field for, for quite a while. And I, in the, around 2010 had sort of hit a wall with my frustration around the fact that um, I saw museums doing so much, good in the community with their education programs and so forth but but they were garnering lots of you know mainstream large museums would were garnering 
criticism over, oh, they've increased their um, admission fee or, oh, they're in their ivory towers. And to some extent, you know, maybe they were in their ivory towers. And I began to um, think about this intersection of how can how can we be more relevant in um, at a time when, um, you know, millennial audiences, even beginning in 2010, are looking for more relevance. They're looking for more personalized experience. We're all looking for more personalized experiences. Um, and um, I also have always been, for most of my life, really passionate about teenagers. I, I really like teenagers. I like being with them. I, um, when my daughter aged out of her teen years, I was finding other ways to get involved with teens. And I left um, Shed Aquarium in 2010 and started um, my own project, which was called Youth Muse, in which I was um, focusing on how could we take teens who are already in museum programs where they're getting excited, they're drinking the Kool-Aid, they're getting excited about what the museum does, but then they were mostly just learning about the work of the museum or the aquarium or the zoo or the botanic garden. Um, and how could we get them activated? And since I'd come from the, the zoo and aquarium world, I was already working in a field where we were trying to educate audiences about um, environment and risk to animals and things like beach cleanups and, and uh, um, environmentalism, the, the need to think about how we use, how, you know, the, how we generate waste, how we um, maintain clean water. Um, so the, the zoo aquarium garden community was already advocating out in their communities on behalf of the environment, but um, couldn't we do more? And, you know, obviously Holocaust museums are talking about um, not not forgetting the Holocaust or um, focusing on genocide. The Muhammad Ali Museum in Kentucky was has an anti-bullying focus. I know the Illinois Holocaust Museum has an anti-bullying focus, and it seemed to me that the that there were lots of opportunities for museums to have a voice in social good and social justice. And um, Intuit asked me to come and help them start a teen program from scratch. So I didn't have an my background was in marketing and administration, but I loved working with teens, and I always have just facilitated teens the way I you know, would facilitate adults for uh, marketing and strategic planning sessions. And so Intuit asked me to come in and help them start a teen program, and I, and I did that, and that's when I just fell in love with the mission of Intuit, because here is a great intersection of art by the disenfranchised, not in every case, but in many cases, um, a role that museums can play in bringing audiences together to talk about those challenges. And um, and I had just started a teen program here, so I love the teen program here, and my and my own passion. So th this is and and the need for um, a greater role in, in social good and social justice. So I've been uh, talking about this in a number of venues. There's some museums around the country that are really in around the world that are doing really amazing work. Um, there's um, a museum in Massachusetts where um, juvenile offenders are being sentenced to art. They have to participate in, a, in an arts program with uh, a local museum. Yes, at the Clark. Yeah, right, exactly, I, the Clark. I, 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 yeah. 
I interviewed uh, the woman who created that program, um, and it can be found on Best Cultural Destinations. But yeah, I mean, it's um, it's really heartening to see um, institutions that have this body of work um, and you know how that work can become more relevant to all kinds of different people. Right. Um, MoMA for years has, the Museum of Modern Art has had a, a program um, where um, people with Alzheimer's or dementia and their caregivers can come in and have a, a tour and an experience, which is really good for, for those folks because when you're looking at art and talking about art, you're right in the moment. You don't have to you don't have to remember things. You can just live right in the moment. And the studies have shown that the people who have experienced their program, uh, both the you know the caregivers have reported that their the people under their care have been less stressed, more calm, you know, appear happier in the uh, week following their visit. And now that that program is being replicated, MoMA's helping museums around the country adopt that. And the Nasher Sculpture um, Museum in Dallas within the last couple of years actually had a um, museums and Alzheimer's uh, conference to talk about the role that museums can have. Um, we had an exhibit um, within the last couple of years of works by um, an artist who had been incarcerated for 25 years. And we had him come and talk about um, how he began making uh, sculpture when he was in prison. And he started out just using toilet paper and spit and ramen noodles to make these really detailed, intricate sculptures, and eventually was able to get permission to, to order um, more elaborate supplies. But his sculptures from that time period are incredibly horrific because the, they have themes of, of being locked up and themes of time going really slowly. His his work is really powerful. He's he's out of prison now and he's making a living as an artist. And wow. um, it's great to see that um, incredible transformation of someone that happened through his compulsion to make art. Mm. And what a metaphor, you know, for so many people out there that, you know, may not be in a physical prison, but may be imprisoned by who knows what, that the art is an avenue to, you know, escape the, the confines that are kind of keeping you trapped. Um, yeah, if, you, wanna... if, you're, if, you're, if you're the sort of person that's in any sort of situation where you feel like you're, you're powerless, um, you, you talked about that the person at home, you talked about the CEO. I mean, I think all of us, if we have uh, a loved one who is, um, has an illness if, and we can't, and we're powerless to, to do something, any sort of situation where any of us feel like we have the loss of power, art making actually does bring us some some self self fulfillment some feeling of control and i think also um it's the idea that um it is empowering you know that you can make something happen you know like because i think people can sometimes feel like they they can't make anything happen so right um now the flip side of the coin that we've been talking about in terms of the the beneficiaries of um the programs that museums are coming up with these days. Um, for more than two decades, Intuit has provided award-winning professional development to educators through its teacher fellowship program. And throughout the school year, um, that program supports a cohort of teachers 
who create interdis interdisciplinary um, lesson plans inspired by outsider artists. I think this is so cool. And um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about this program and some of the kinds of lessons that it offers. So with each school that we work with, we're working with two teachers. And typically one of those is an art teacher and the other one is a teacher of some other subject and they have to agree to do it together and then they you know the school agrees to be part of the program and and we up to now we've been working only with Chicago public schools and 60 to 70% of those schools every year are in um, uh, low income neighborhoods so that's really gratifying and it's amazing to me every year the programs that the teachers come up with. So they spend a Saturday a month with us in the fall learning about outsider art, um, the artists, the different methodologies. Um, they do a big curriculum slam where they all get together and critique each other's curriculum in January, and then they implement those curricula in the classrooms throughout the spring. And each teacher gets a stipend from us to, to purchase supplies, but also to be able to bring their classrooms here on an extended field trip because Chicago Public Schools, like many other school systems around the country, don't have funding to do the kinds of uh, field trips that they that kids used to expect to be able to do. Right. And, um, and they come, they have a rich program here. They usually bring their lunch. They do some kind of creative activity. They get a, a, a guided tour. And then at the end of the school year, the um, one of our galleries is dedicated to displaying a, a curated show of the works created in the schools and by the classrooms. And we invite all of the kids, their families, um, their teachers, anyone they want to bring. And it's one of the most fun days here of the whole year because it's, it's such a great group. And so for instance, you know, we might have a teacher of art and a theater teacher and then what ends up happening is that there's a performance aspect to the visual art that's created. And that's really fun because um, the kids will oftentimes do their, their um, spoken word aspect of the, of the art that goes with their visual presentation. Um, we've had uh, classrooms stage um all kinds of performances and dance to go with it. Um, this year, I know that we have a, a math teacher uh, partnered with the art teacher, and they're using the art of um, Chicago artist Wesley Willis, who did these incredibly detailed drawings, oftentimes from memory, of the Chicago skyline and the buildings. And they're using um, like math cubes. So these little foam cubes that are a certain, like, I don't know, they're like one inch square or something, uh, one inch cubes. And, you know, how many cubes would be in a building of, Wesley, you know, like Wesley Willis's mm. art, like one of the Chicago buildings that Wesley drew. So they're using that to learn math and to create these three-dimensional sculptures that are inspired by Wesley Willis's work. So to me, uh, that's super cool and a great way to get you know, someone like me who wasn't that great of a math kid to be engaged with math. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I would agree. I, I am right there with you. And, you know, one of the, the issues I have with math is, you know, what is the relevance? And so, you know, what you're describing is a really cool example of somebody that, um, you know, 
is on the outside, so to speak, um, you know, who really has something of value to offer people on, um, you know, how to understand kind of a, a 101 curriculum. So that's really, um, that's really great. Um, now, for my last question of you, Deb, um, BCD's tagline is people are culture and connecting is the destination. And it seems to me that your work and the work of Intuit is also about connection. Um, so in closing, I'm wondering if you could share a message with listeners about what quote unquote connection means to you and um, you know how you can suggest people go about trying to achieve that. Don't be afraid, reach out, make a partner. Gosh, there's so many ways that, that we can partner today and leverage creativity to do that. It doesn't have to be visual art. It can be music or poetry or dance, but um, put creativity into your life and that's a great way to connect with other people. Everyone relates to creativity. Even if they think they don't, there's something that um, there's something that connects with them. So I would say that connection and creativity go hand in hand. Reach out, reach out and enjoy and enjoy something beautiful together. Mm. That's great advice. Well, I thank you so much. This has been just um, such a treat and I've learned a lot and I really appreciate you making the time to share with listeners um, the world of outside art and Intuit. Thank you so much, Meg. It was a great pleasure to talk with you and have this fun conversation. Alrighty. Thanks, Deb. Thank you.